Okay, so you see, you see the challenge here? Here's the scene. It's very, it, the, part of the challenge is it's a relatively familiar story. And so if you've been around church, you've been in Sunday school or something, you kind of say, oh, I've heard this story. This is a cute little story, lowering the paralyzed man into, into Jesus. But, but think about the scene for just a minute. Jesus enters into Capernaum, which is a small kind of fishing village on the Sea of Galilee that became Jesus' home, his kind of home base for, for ministry while he was in that region. It's about 20 miles northeast of Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And so now he's coming back to Capernaum after some doing, doing some ministry, and he's, he's getting famous by now, so there's a buzz. He's kind of creating, creating a buzz, and he's, he's, he's in this house, he's in someone's house, and he's teaching, and the people are just jamming in to hear his teaching. You've got to come see this guy. You've got to hear what's, hear what's happening. So it's standing room only in here. And Mark says he preached the word to them, which is simply to say that he was declaring to them the gospel. Mark actually gives us a summary. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, Mark gives us a summary of what Jesus had been teaching about what this word would be. The, the time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That was the, that was the essence of what Jesus is teaching. God's rule is arriving. You need to repent of your rebellion against God and put your faith and your trust in the rescue that God is offering. That's what Jesus was doing. Right? And then this amazing thing happens. Right? These four guys are bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus probably because they had heard about the miracles, and they said, we've got to get him to Jesus. He's doing amazing things. But when they get to the house, right, they can't even get in because it's so packed with people, they can't even get in the door. So what, so what do they do? It's almost, it's almost comical if you kind of think about it. Right? You can almost picture these guys kind of getting there and talking amongst themselves. What are we going to do? And one, one's maybe saying, like, well, at least we tried. Right? Another one's saying, like, let's just wait. Let's just wait till everybody goes, and we'll kind of, maybe we'll meet him by the stage door, and he'll kind of, we'll get him as he as he exits. And then one of them has a bright idea. He says, I know. Let's go up to the roof, dig a hole in the roof, and we'll lower him down in front of Jesus. And somehow all four of them come to the clue. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so that's what they do, right? Now, a typical roof of the time, just so you kind of understand this, a typical roof of the time would have started with the long wooden beams that were kind of laid at like three foot kind of spacing across the, you know, the upper floor, the walls of the upper floor. And then, and then crosswise on these beams would have been laid sticks. And then they would have piled twigs and leaves and stuff on top of that. And then about a, about a foot of earth <clears throat> kind of on top of that, packed down really hard to sort of keep out the, the moisture and the weather and the rain and those sorts of things. Right? So in total, you're talking about a couple of feet of roof here. Right? So it means these guys are literally digging through the roof. Right? And, and not just a little hole to kind of peek through. They're digging a hole that's big enough to be able to lower a man through. So, so everyone who's sitting there below, this, like this couldn't have just taken two seconds. It's not like they blasted a hole in the roof, right? There's these people underneath sitting there, and dirt's starting to fall on them. And they're going, what is going on? Right? And they're digging a hole. Dirt's getting all over them. And then down comes this, this guy. Not only does it mean that, it, that, that people are getting covered with dirt, but, but whoever's house this is, I mean, they've got a gigantic repair issue to deal with. Right? Could have been, now, some people, think it was, some people think it was Peter's house. Some think it was Peter's mother-in-law's house. Can you imagine? Right? Peter, what's going on with the roof? Right? Right? Now, but, but that's the, so what happens next, though, is what that, I mean, that, you'd think that would be like, this is a big deal, but, what, but it's really what happens next that causes all the controversy, right? Jesus looks at the faith of these guys, and he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, which is, as we'll see, 
either an incredibly arrogant and unhelpful thing to say to a suffering man or the most loving and caring thing that one could possibly say. Now, which is it? Right? Well, well, which one you think it is, arrogant or loving, depends entirely upon how you view what Jesus is offering to the man. It depends entirely about how you think of forgiveness. So that, that's, what I, that's, what I, that's what I want us to think about. Think about what's, what is Jesus offering this man? He's offering him forgiveness. Right? Because how we think about forgiveness will totally shape how we think about Jesus. So let's think about it like this. First, the necessity of forgiveness. Second, the giver of forgiveness. Third, the difficulty of forgiveness. And then finally, the response to forgiveness. So the necessity, the giver, the difficulty, and the response. Now first, the necessity of forgiveness. We don't know for sure what this man's condition was. Some people speculate that it was paralysis as a result of polio. Some, some people think it's some type of cerebral palsy. Other, you know, could have been the result of some kind of injury. We don't know. But what we do know is that the condition he's in makes him completely incapable of moving himself. And so he requires the assistance of four men to get him to Jesus. And we can speculate, perhaps, that there was some sort of urgency to this. Hence, their need to get him in front of Jesus right now. And on top of that, on top of all the physical things that would have been going on with this man, and, and, and this, they were living in a world, quite obviously, right, that was far from, you know, ADA compliant, right? far from, from, from friendly to people with physical disabilities. Right? But on top of that, they were living in the first century where it was universally assumed that if you were crippled or paralyzed in some way, it was your fault, right? Because God or the gods or something like that were certainly punishing you. Right? So this guy, on top of the physical issues that he had to face, had probably faced years and years of, of, of ridicule and emotional abuse because of his condition. Right? All that to say, this is a guy who was really hurting, which is why you might look at the way Jesus reacts and think that Jesus needs some serious sensitivity training here. Right? Really, Jesus? I mean, that's not the way to speak to someone who's in such an obvious condition of pain. Right? I mean, it's nice that you care about his forgiveness and all, but would but look at him. That's clearly not this guy's most pressing need. Right? But first of all, we should be very, very careful, just as a, as a general principle. You should be very, very careful about lecturing Jesus on how to be compassionate to the poor and the outcast and the marginalized and the abused, because it was kind of his thing. Okay? So, so, so just because you don't, you, you, as, you look, as you look at his life, you should be very careful. Do I really have any real credibility to tell Jesus how he should be treating someone who's been, been abused and suffering. All right, but that's not, that in itself, though, is not a positive argument. That's just because just we can't do it better doesn't mean that Jesus is doing it right, unless, unless, of course, Jesus knows something about this man's needs that we don't. Unless Jesus actually has it right. What if forgiveness and not physical healing, what if forgiveness is actually the man's most foundational need? What if it's ours? Now understand, it's, it's, it's impossible for Jesus, and it would have been possible, impossible for the, for the Jewish mind of the time to completely delink the two. Right? You, you couldn't just separate spiritual and physical healing from one another because throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, they were linked together all the time. For example, here's just one example. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, the Lord who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. And the two are, the two are linked over and over again. Right? So it's impossible to link them, but what, de-link them. But what Jesus is doing, by starting with, the, with this and not with the physical healing that he'll get to later, 
what he's doing is saying is actually the most foundational need, the greatest need of this man is for forgiveness. Now, sometimes we don't think so. We think that we, we, think that we have much more pressing needs in our life. Right? What would some of them be for you? What are your, what are your kind of if-onlys, right? If, if only, if your if-only, right? Your job? If only my job were less stressful or more fulfilling, and if only I could get it, get it done without constant conflict and interruption and backstabbing. If, I could, if, only I could, if only I could get paid the wage that I really deserve. If only I had a job that was, that was fulfilling. If only, right? If only my kids would listen to me, realize that I want their good, not talk back. If only. If only my parents would listen to me, realize that I'm a real person. I'm not just some little robot. Right? Understand that life as a kid isn't always, isn't always easy, and I'm just trying to figure out life the best I can, if only. Or maybe you're like the guy in Mark 2. If only I could get better. If only my, my back would stop hurting me, my migraines would go away, my cancer would go into remission, if only. And we make really long lists, and we want to take them to Jesus, and we want to present them to say, okay, you want to start healing? Here you go. Start here. But Jesus knows that isn't our greatest need. He's not indifferent to them, but he knows that our most urgent need is forgiveness. And I think, I think if we're honest, we know it too. Matthew O'Reilly is a, a, a veteran emergency medical technician on Long Island, New York. He's an EMT, which means he's the first responder to the most horrific kinds of accidents and injuries gunshots and accidents and heart attacks and all those kinds of things. And he says in that position over the years, he has often been the first person on the scene and the last person to be with someone as they die. And he says when there's nothing, when there's nothing to do, nothing that his training, nothing that all the technology can do, he says people know it. They know they're dying. I don't think that Matthew, I don't know for certain, I don't think that Matt O'Reilly is a Christian. He might be, but he he makes no claim to be in what I was listening to. But he said that in all of his years, all of his years of having conversations with those just about to die, certain patterns always emerge. Certain things that that the people universally need at that moment, and he says at the top of that list, the very number one thing that he experiences is the need for forgiveness. He says regardless of religious belief, regardless of cultural background, there is a need for forgiveness. Whether they call it sin or they simply say they have a regret, their guilt is universal. Back in 2008, there was an episode of ER, you know, the the TV drama, the hospital drama that's set in the emergency room, right? The real doctors roll their eyes and they say, like, well, that couldn't be. But, But it was very popular, right? Well, there was an episode, there was an episode that was entitled Atonement in 2008. And, and, and in this episode, there's this former prison doctor who's named Truman. And Truman is, is dying with cancer, and he's laden with guilt. And just like, just like Matt O'Reilly said, at the, moment, at the moment of life when all the if-onlys just become irrelevant, right, Truman is absolutely desperate for the one thing that he knows that he absolutely needs. So they send in the chaplain. He's asking all these questions. They send in the, they send in the chaplain, and Truman just unloads. Right? He, tells her that, that he tells her that one of his roles as a prison doctor was to administer lethal injections. And with incredible pain, he kind of just he tells the chaplain about this time in his life when, when he was set to, to deliver a lethal injection to someone, and it didn't work. Now, the IV infiltrated. So this is the, the drugs didn't go into, his, into the bloodstream. It just kind of pooled in the tissue. And the guy didn't die. And he said, I should have known. I should have taken it as a sign from God. 
He said, but I didn't. I just casually just mixed up another dose and administered it, and the guy died. And months later, they found out that the guy had been framed. He didn't actually commit the crime. And Truman had been murdered, killed, in his mind, as he was thinking about it, an innocent man. Now, the point is not the, the point is not the rightness or wrongness of capital punishment at, at, this, at this juncture or the, or, the, or the failings of the criminal justice system or whether Truman actually, what kind of guilt he actually bore in that instance. The point is the man is acutely aware at the moment of death that what he most desperately needs is not healing from his cancer. What he most desperately needs is forgiveness. Right, now, you might have never been a prison doctor who executed the wrong man, but what would it be for you? If you left here this morning right, and you were in an accident on your way home and Matt O'Reilly arrives on the scene, right, and all your if-onlys are irrelevant at that point, what would be your guilt? Right, the thing that you've never told anyone about. Right? And especially I want you to hear, those of you that with the right theological answer to this, I don't have any guilt. It's all been forgiven. You're right. You're absolutely right. And that's where we're going. The, the, the guilt of our sin is forgiven. But, but I want you to think and say like, but are there things where you struggle with that assurance? Are there areas where you would doubt that? What would you say? What's that thing which for you, even with all the right theology, that thing that you wonder if you could ever really be forgiven for? Things you've done, things you've failed to do. See, deep down we know it. We know that forgiveness is absolutely necessary. That's point number one. But, but before we leave that, to whom do you go? The most haunting thing about that ER episode is how frustrated that the, the dying prison doctor gets with the chaplain who's trying to make him feel better but can't really give him what he needs. He goes to her and he says, look, after all I've done, how can I even hope for forgiveness? And she just, deflect, just kind of deflects the question and she, she suggests in some spiritual-sounding way that what he really needs to do is just, you just need to forget about that. You need to move on. You need to find a, a new reason to go on. And he says, which means what? Like, what does that mean? Like, I, I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I'm old. I'm dying. <laughs> I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that's holding me back is that I am afraid of what's next. And so she asks them in a very counselor kind of a way, asks him, well, what do you think is next? And he fires back, you tell me. Like, is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? And at that moment, she has absolutely no idea how to answer. She says, well, I think it's up to each of us to, how to interpret what God wants. And he goes absolutely ballistic, right? And she tries to calm him down, but he, but he demands to see someone else. He says, I, look, I want a real chaplain. So I want someone who believes in a real God and a real hell. Now, he's borderline rude, but, but he understands the necessity of forgiveness. He knows exactly what he needs. He says, look, I need answers, and all of your questions, all your uncertainty, they're only making things worse. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. Now, these men in Mark chapter 2, these four friends of the paralytic, they might not have realized it fully, but if finding forgiveness is what the paralyzed man most desperately and foundationally needs, then they have taken him to the right guy. Point number one, the necessity of forgiveness. Now point number two, the giver of forgiveness. Go back to Mark chapter two. They bring the man to Jesus, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, which like we said, like we said might appear, might sound to be a little bit arrogant or at least a little bit silly, 
right? What gives Jesus the right to, to step in and forgive the man's sins? How is Jesus involved in any of this anyway, right? What's he forgiving the man for? He just met the guy, right? It's like Johnny hits Bobby on the playground, and Mrs. Smith goes up to Johnny and says, Johnny, I saw it all. Don't worry. I forgive you. And Bobby, lying on the ground with a welt on his face and a bruise on his arm, looks up and says, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Smith, with all due respect, it's nice that you forgive him, but he hit me. Right? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Right? Who actually has the right to forgive sins? Now, the teachers of the law, look at verse 7, the teachers of the law, they get it right. right? This is, look, look, they know the answer. This is what they're thinking. Look, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they've hit on it. It's a rhetorical question they're thinking to themselves, a question that, that is obvious to them based on the way that they're asking the question. Who has the right to forgive sins? God, only God. And these are the guys who should know because they, they these are the teachers of the law, the scribes. They were the ones who were, were responsible for knowing inside and out the Hebrew Scriptures, all of the law. These were the lawyers. And they weren't just there by accident. They just didn't happen to, to be there. They had heard that Jesus had been teaching, the, teaching to the crowds and drawing big big groups of people and doing miracles and, and, and teaching with this sense of authority. And so they came to check him out. Let's check out the new young rabbi here. Let's see how orthodox this guy is. And so immediately they're listening, they're listening, they're taking notes, and then he says something like this, and their ears just perk up, right? And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who do, you, who do you think you are? Because only God can say what you just said. Now, why is that true? Why can only God say that? Well, because ultimately all sin is against God. The lawyers knew that. They knew the law. They, knew, they understood that the very first and foundational of the Ten Commandments was that God was to be put above everything else, which would mean that this universe, this world, belongs to him. They understood that as creator, he would have the rightful and final authority over, over everything, and that any misuse of anything or anyone in God's created world is, first and foremost, an affront to his authority which would mean that any sin, even one committed against someone else, is a sin first against God. Now, on the one hand, let's just talk to different groups of people here. On the one hand, this should be extremely challenging to you if you're sitting back and you're just kind of thinking, I'm not sure my sin's really that big a deal. Right? I mean, you listen to, you listen to Truman or you say, I, I, I mean, I got things, I got things I did wrong or whatever. He said, but honestly, like, you, you say, I don't, I don't know if I really feel all that guilty. I didn't do all that bad stuff. I don't know if I need forgiveness that badly. Now, wait a minute, though. If, if your sin is ultimately against God, and that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say only God can say that. And Jesus is going to absolutely agree. Right? Then what this means then is that no sin is just a little deal. It's all a very, very big deal. If, if it's necessary for God to forgive it, then it's a very, very big deal. It's like, and, and, it, and it requires sort of a shift in our mindset. It's like, it's like you've been doodling on the little giving envelopes, the little white giving envelopes in the, in the pew there, right? Okay, kind of little offense. You know, you're just kind of doodling. You don't intend to put anything in it. You're just kind of drawing on it, writing your name. But it's like, it, it's like that's what your mindset is. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm not doodling on a white giving envelope. I'm spray painting my name on the side of the White House a much bigger difference in terms of significance and the consequences that will be yours for doodling your name. Right? Do you see? That's, that's the perspective that, that God is giving here. If God is the one who has to do the forgiving, then sin is a much, much bigger deal than we commonly think. 
Now, maybe that's not where you are at all when you hear this kind of say. That's not the first thing that kind of enters your mind. Maybe you can't help thinking about it another way because you're struggling. You're struggling with this, with what Jesus is saying when he comes in and says your sins are forgiven. And if that's true, that, you know, God ultimately, God's the one who has to sin, forgive sins first and foremost, you're struggling with that because you've been wronged. You've been, you've been abused. You've been sinned against. You've been hurt by someone. Right? Because if this is true, if this, is, if this is in fact is our sin is first and foremost foundationally against God, then it might not initially sit well with you because your first reaction might be to think, that's not, wait a minute, that's not fair. Wait a minute, what about me? I'm the one here who was, who was wronged. Right? I, don't want the, I don't want some other person who hurt me going to God and God giving him forgiveness. What about me? They should come to me. Well, that's true. Right? If someone has wronged you, they should rightly come to you and ask for forgiveness. And if you've wronged someone else, then you should rightly go to them and you should ask for forgiveness. But think about this for a minute. If someone has deeply hurt you, do you really want to be the ultimate court? Or would it actually be more comforting to know that ultimately their sin is against someone significantly greater than you? that they need to answer to a much higher court with significantly greater powers of redress than you possess. Would that be comforting to you? Of course it would. And the only reason why it wouldn't be is if you believe that that higher court, that that greater court, doesn't really take forgiveness very seriously. See, what's frustrating for Bobby as he lies on the ground with the welt on his face, right, What's frustrating for him as he hears his teacher forgive Johnny is, is that he looks and says, wait a minute, that's it? <laughs> he's done? Did you see what he did? It seems way too easy. And, he's, and I think he's right. I think, Bob, I think Bobby has a point here. Right? Mrs. Smith is not a very satisfying giver of forgiveness. But the giver of forgiveness in Mark chapter 2 isn't like that. Jesus knows that forgiveness is not just some easy thing. Forgiveness is very, very difficult. That's point number three now, the difficulty of forgiveness. See, in response to what, what, what he knows the teachers of the law are thinking, Jesus gives them this riddle. Look at verse 9. He says, which is easier to say? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, it's a riddle because the first obvious answer isn't the right answer. The first obvious answer is, well, of course. I mean, if you're just saying it. If you're just saying, which is easier to say to someone, well, then it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. If that's all you were doing, it's much easier to just walk up to someone and say, your sins are forgiven, than to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk. Why? Why would that be easier if if you're just saying it? Because you can't be proven wrong. I mean, if you're a fraud, you'd be exposed by the fact that you tried to heal someone and he doesn't actually get up. Right? If you're doing that, you just spout off whatever words you want. Hey, I forgive you. Go. Right? But that's not the answer that Jesus intends. Jesus is saying to them, look, you think these are just cheap words? Right? You, you think I don't know what I'm saying? Or worse, you think I do know what I'm saying, but I don't actually have the authority to make the claim? Right? You think I'm just taking the easy way in this? And that's exactly right. That's what the scribes were thinking. And Jesus says, all right, fine then. Fine, let me do for you, let me do in front of you what you think is, what you think is harder, but which is actually much easier for me. Let me show you the ease of healing so that you can understand the difficulty of forgiveness. Right? And then he simply turns, he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he does. He gets up. He takes his mat. He goes home. Right? Jesus does the easy to illustrate his authority to do the difficult. 
because healing bones and muscles and ligaments and tendons and all those kinds of things, that's easy for the creator who spoke the world into existence, right? It's not insignificant, but relatively speaking for him, that's not difficult. But forgiveness, well, that's a, that comes at a much greater cost. There's this scene toward the end of Les Miserables, my favorite musical, when Marius is sitting all alone in the cafe where he and his friends used to hang out. Right? And, and it's after the failed revolution, and Marius was one of the revolutionaries, and this is early 1800s in France, and there were insurrections all the time. It's, it's a fictional story, of course, but it's set in an historical context. And so Marius is the lone survivor of all of, all, all of these friends of his. And he's sitting, and he's sitting. Now, Marius had been, had been very seriously wounded himself on the barricades in the, in the midst of the fighting. In fact, he was near death with significant injuries, but he survived. For the most part, the, inju- the injuries themselves, the physical injuries themselves, they had healed. But he hadn't healed. And he sings, oh, my friends, my friends, forgive me that I live and you are gone. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Now, what's that pain? He's physically healed, right? But that was the easier healing, all things considered. What's harder is the guilt. So he's left sitting there all by himself among the empty chairs at empty tables, and he's just sitting there with this guilt and this need for forgiveness. Now, in this case, in this case, survivor's guilt like this happens. You know, survivor's guilt, actually, it's often misplaced. It doesn't really have anything to do with real guilt that that person is carrying. They didn't do anything. But if it's, but if it's that deep for a situation like that where he actually doesn't really bear, the, bear much guilt for what had, what had happened and why he survived, if it's that deep, if, if it can't be healed despite all the physical things that have, that have already been healed, then what does it tell us about, about guilt that really is due to us, that really is our responsibility? I mean, in some cases, you know, like, like when soldiers return from, from combat, the things that people have done, the things that they've experienced, the things that they've been a part of, they form a guilt and a grief that, that literally in their minds they think it can't be spoken. Right? Someone was recently relating to me a, a story, an update on a relationship that he has with a neighbor, a military special forces operative, and he's been sharing the gospel with them. Right? And the man's primary, under, primary struggle in understanding this idea of grace and forgiveness is that he believes that the things that he's done, the things he's been a part of, the things that he's seen sort of put him beyond the scope, put him beyond the possibility of forgiveness. Now, just like you might not be Truman on ER and, and, and you're likely not a special forces operative, right? But, but, but just like, just, even though that's true, like you, you have the same, we have the same thought. And I'm not sure God could really forgive me. I'm not sure it can just be that easy. See, and the point to answer that is, is like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's not that big a deal. That's not the way to answer it. That's not what Jesus says. No, it's not easy. It's hard. The removal of guilt is very hard, so hard, that only the Son of Man can do it. See, and it's in this little exchange here that, that Jesus is having with the scribes that Mark intends for us to see that. Like I said at the beginning, Mark is placing this this incident here in the narrative for a very intentional reason. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus encountering resistance, opposition, right? And it would have been impossible for Jesus to experience this without knowing where it ultimately was going to lead, right? See, this, this is just the initial fact-finding mission for the, for the teachers of the law, but they're lawyers, and they're building a case. And this charge of blasphemy claiming to be God, is eventually what is used against Jesus in his trial. See, all of this is leading to the cross, right? Jesus would have known that. He understood that. 
being a miracle worker, that wouldn't have gotten him executed. But being God, that did. Right? Being a miracle worker would have been easy for him. Right? Would have made him a hero. Right? That would have been easy. But he didn't come to do the easy. He came to forgive sins. He came to remove guilt. He came to offer atonement. He came to give forgiveness. And that's difficult. That requires a cross. But see, in the difficulty, in the difficulty of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, that's exactly where we find our hope. See, this man's legs were healed because Jesus' legs were nailed to a cross. This man went home because Jesus, instead of staying at home in Capernaum to live, went to Jerusalem to die. But how do we know it worked? I mean, if it's really so hard, if it's really so difficult, because Jesus didn't just stay dead. He got up. Mark uses the exact same word. When he, when he says here, when he, the, the words of Jesus in, in, uh, in verse 11, I tell you, he says to the paralytic, get up. Right? It's the exact same thing that the angel tells, says to the women, the exact same word that the angels use when they describe to the women, the women at the tomb that Jesus isn't there. In Mark chapter 16, the, the angel comes to the women at the empty tomb and says, he isn't here. He's risen. He's gotten up. Just like the man got up. Or better to say, instead of looking back, the man got up because Jesus ultimately would. See, our healing, our forgiveness, is entirely dependent upon Jesus. Now, the last point, the response to forgiveness, and this really isn't anything to significantly develop, but it's just simply to highlight. The crowds of people in verse 12 were absolutely amazed, and they left praising God. Now, most of them probably because they completely misunderstood what had happened, completely misunderstood the significance. They were amazed because they saw a miracle. This guy that they knew was paralyzed is now walking around, and that's powerful. But Mark is helping us to see that that's not really the most amazing thing here. And if you have experienced the forgiveness of God, then you, then you have a relief that feels like a paralytic bounding across a field going home on two legs for the very first time. I mean, I spent a few months when I broke my heel in a cast, and I know how it felt to run for the first time after that. It's just a couple of months. Now magnify it. That's what it feels like when your sins have been forgiven and your guilt is completely removed. It's like weightlessness. Spiritually speaking, every single one of you have been carried in here this morning. But there is absolutely no reason why you can't walk out. Because in being carried here, you have been laid at the feet of Jesus. And he says, with great appreciation for the weight that's involved, he says, get up, because I've borne that weight for you. Let's pray together.